All right. So, um, hey, 10 years ago, uh, we had this idea. I look back, it was way back in 2012, and we said, hey, what if every once in a while we took a Sunday and instead of doing a normal sermon message, we just tried to talk about some of the toughest questions we had. And uh, so we've been doing it for a while. We do it every once in a while. I think it's been a couple of years since we've done one, so we thought this would be a good weekend to do it. And um, some of you wrote questions online this past week, so we collected a bunch of those. We've got some of those in some notes up here, and then a bunch of you wrote questions just uh, a few minutes ago, and I just skimmed through those really quick, and um, there's lots of great questions. And so before we talk about them, let me... um, just give you a few qualifiers. One, we're not going to be able to talk about all of these questions. Uh, there's just too many to talk about in just a few minutes. So if we don't read or talk about one of your questions, it's not because it wasn't a good question. Um, these are all great questions. It's just we just don't have time. And so we're going to try to talk about the ones that we think are the most common or that we have uh, that wouldn't be so long that would take forever to talk about, but maybe um, we could engage here this morning. So But if we don't get to your question, it's still a good question, and we'll hopefully address it at some point. Um, Another qualifier is um, we're just going to offer our thoughts on these, right? So um, Emily will sort of sort through the questions and ask them. I'll do most of the talking, but she'll probably do some talking as well. And uh, at the end of the day, um, these are kind of just our thoughts, meaning they're not necessarily the right answers, Um, So we don't call this Q&A for a reason. Uh, We call it FAQ um, because we don't want to suppose that we have the right or the perfect answers for all of these and certainly not in just two or three minutes, right? Um, And so we're just going to offer, hopefully our thoughts are informed and they're based on the Bible and a few of these questions I've thought a lot about, some of these questions I've never thought about, right? So I'm going to be shooting from the hip a little bit and so just understand um, that that's somewhat purposeful. Our goal isn't to give you the perfect right answers for you to just go home and be like, oh, that's perfect. That's what I was looking for. Um, in some ways, our goal is just to stimulate conversations and, and thoughts, right? So if you go home more stimulated, like, wow, that was interesting or that was helpful, um, and you have conversations with other people about it, like, that's awesome. That's, that's what we want. Um, and then the last thing I would say is... Um, We are not necessarily saying this is when we answer questions or offer thoughts on questions. We're not necessarily saying this is the official position of New Denver Church, right? Uh, We're just sort of offering our thoughts. Um, Here at New Denver, um, we say that the Apostles' Creed uh, are the central sort of tenets of our faith as followers of Jesus. And everything outside of that is really secondary. And probably almost everything we talk about this morning is going to be sort of outside of that. It's more secondary issues. And so again, we hope they're helpful thoughts, um, but we're not necessarily speaking for like, this is the official position. If you want to go to church here, this is what you have to believe. That's not really what this is about either. All right. Uh, That sound good. Questions about that? All right. Let's jump in. Um, So you had a chance to skim through them. Uh, And we're going to kind of go back and forth. We got some, like I said, online and some um, obviously this morning. So. What do you think? Yeah. Do you have anything to add to that? Um, The only thing I would add is just, I know that it's, it's nice to be anonymous sometimes and get to ask something that maybe you wouldn't ask in person, but we really love when people are brave and have questions and don't carry them around with them until an FAQ, like once a year. We just want to hear from you and grab coffee and talk about these things and be able to get context of why you're asking this. And anyway, I think that that can sometimes be even more helpful. So if your question's not answered today, or even if it is, grab one of us and get coffee sometime. And that's a good format for this as well. Yeah. Sounds good. Okay. 
Um, <laughs> Norton, what is the best way to read the Bible, start to finish, or is there a recommended order? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. We do try to talk about this some. Um, I don't think there's a best way. So I think uh, it's okay to skip around. Um, I think it's, what's most helpful is to just take a diversity of different approaches. So it might be helpful to work your way through a whole book, um, a gospel about Jesus's teaching and his life and sort of get what that whole gospel is saying about Jesus and then go to a different book, maybe to a book from the Old Testament or something like that. Um, so there's different approaches. I, maybe one thing I would say that I don't think is helpful is just to pull like one verse out of context, right? Or just, to, um, there's like calendars, you know, that have like the verse of the day. And I get that. And that can be helpful. And sometimes there's a truth in a verse that is helpful to remember, but just reading sort of one verse or one statement, you don't always get the broader context. So I think it's important to read longer chunks when you have time. And then I would say, every few years maybe to say this year I'm going to read through the whole Bible like I'm going to give it a try and uh, there's some different plans and we can give you some recommendations about different plans Um, start to finish is hard because the first few books of the Bible are hard and it's easy to get bogged down Um, but I also think it can be hard if you're just totally skipping around because you don't really see the trajectory Um, so there's maybe a middle of the road approach where you can sort of work your way through the trajectory but not get bogged down Um, and we might have some specific suggestions for that if you want to come ask one of us do you add anything to that? Um, yeah, I think that's good. I think knowing the whole story of scripture is super important. And so being able to read from start to finish, but maybe just like skim some of the books or lists of names or, you know, you don't have to like read everything for it to count. Um, it's more important tell, to get the big story. We'll just tell yeah. Isaiah, you yeah. skimmed his book, but you read John because it was better. Like, no, I'm joking. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Um, can you talk about the Trinity versus, we say this a lot, a growing relationship with Jesus? Um, this person said, we recite the creed and we state our faith in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but there's less teaching about the roles that each play in our faith. Yeah, um, this is one somebody wrote this week, and I think it's a great question. I actually take it more as a suggestion for us um, because the Trinity really is central Uh, to our faith. I mean, it is one of the most unique things about Christianity, right? This belief in three persons, one God, and how that all works. And yet it's hard to understand. Uh, It's hard to wrap our minds around. We don't really have logical categories or language that can explain it very well. Um, And in fact, because of that, sometimes we're hesitant spending too much time trying to explain it because the Bible never explains it. The Bible just sort of affirms it and proclaims it, but it never really, there's, Paul never like sits down and says, hey, let me explain the Trinity to you. He just never does that. And so we're a bit hesitant to try to do that because we know oftentimes our analogies or illustrations can be helpful, but they can also fall short. Um, one thing is we did do a series on the Apostles' Creed uh, earlier this year. I think it was in February. Um, and Emily actually uh, did a message in that where she talked about the Trinitarian nature of the Apostles' Creed. And I think you spent like 10 minutes in your sermon explaining and unpacking a little bit of the Trinity. And so you can always go back and, and listen to that message. Um, if you search for Apostles' Creed on our website, you can probably find it. Um, but even there, there's like a hesitancy to spend too much time talking about it. Um, because again, it's such a mysterious and difficult thing. But having said that, I think this is a good suggestion 
Because what it might mean is perhaps we need to talk more about the unique roles each play. Like, what is it that we need to look to the father for? Like, what is the role the father plays in our lives? And what are some of the unique roles that the son, Jesus, plays? And maybe what are some of the unique roles the Holy Spirit plays? That could be an area we might consider teaching on or unpacking more um, sometime. So, yeah. Sounds good. Um, okay. Do you think of God as very close and personal, or is he more interested in the whole of humanity? Uh, yes. <laughs> That's an easy one. Um, uh, somebody wrote that this morning. It's a great question. And I think actually uh, you're articulating the tension that we have to hold. That, um, so theologians use big words here, and there's two big words, imminence and transcendence. And imminence is sort of that nearness of God, that he is very close to all of us, and you see that in so many passages of scripture, that say he cares about the intimate things in your life, and when you pray to him, he hears you. Um, And then there's also the transcendence, the idea that he is huge and big and beyond anything we can imagine. And he has, you know, the whole song, he has the whole world in his hands and he's, he, he has a plan and a vision for all of creation, all of humanity. And I find myself sort of going back and forth between the two. And I think that's okay. There's probably times in your life or seasons in your life where you feel like God is distant and you need to lean into his imminence more, his nearness and then there's maybe other times where, you know, we talk too much about his imminence and we don't stand back and we're not in awe of his, his bigness and his transcendence. And so I think the key is sort of just is holding on to both at the same time. Um, do you agree? Yeah. Okay. Um, how much is God or the Holy Spirit involved in people outside of Christianity? Does God reveal things through meditation, like yoga, to people who don't have Christ? I get that Jesus is the only way to peace with God, but is God just silent to anyone else? Um, well, I love yoga, so I hope he reveals <laughs> things to us through yoga. But um, no, I, this, is a, this is a great question, and it's a tough one. Um, So as I think about the Bible, there's a few passages that come to mind. One passage is it talks about the Holy Spirit is at work in the world, drawing people to himself, um, convicting them of their sin or their selfish ways. And so I think there is the sense that he is at work in the world in maybe ways that don't look specifically Christian or specifically churchy. And I have to assume that when someone chooses to follow Jesus in their life, the Holy Spirit was doing all sorts of work in their life underneath the soil, if you will, that you couldn't see until it started to become more evident. Um, So in that sense, it seems like, yes, the Spirit works in ways that are mysterious. um, And we shouldn't discount that. Um, There's stories about that in scripture. Um, Now, some of those stories may not be normative. That's an important distinction. Whenever you read a story in scripture of something sort of really fascinating or interesting or out of the ordinary happening, that doesn't mean that that's what happens to everybody. It might be truly out of the ordinary, and that's not normative. So we shouldn't expect that all the time. But there are passages or stories in scripture where God is at work 
in people's lives through dreams or through interesting encounters they have or through sources um, that, uh, that he's drawing them to himself. Um, that said, uh, Jesus came to be the perfect revelation of who God is. Revelation meaning the revealing. Like if we want to know ultimately who God is, if we want to know what his character is like, if we want to have a relationship with the creator of this universe, the best way to see what he's like and to understand him is always going to be through the person of Jesus. Um, and scripture is a witness to that. So I think it's important to still uphold that as sort of the primary way that God reveals himself to people. It's going to be through people coming to an understanding of who Jesus is, and it's going to be through teaching and the guidance of scripture, helping them along that path. Um, does that help? feel like that gets to I it? I don't know. Do you feel like that answered your question? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I wish we knew. Um, um, no, I think that that's... Good. Yes, God is active in the whole world and can speak to anybody and can use different things to speak to people. Um, and yeah, ultimately, Jesus is the only way to peace with God. I think you have definitely have your finger on that as well. Um, can I give you a really fun one? Sure. Okay. I hope it's fun. Eh. Why is God seemingly okay with people being murdered, abused, raped, assaulted in the Old Testament, but does a 180 with Jesus? Why don't you take this one? <laughs> um, no, that, I, this is a great question. Um, this came in online this week, and then I, somebody else wrote this morning kind of something very similar. Why is God so different in the Old Testament? In fact, there were several questions it's this morning around that idea. Um, and I, this is a really big issue. Uh, it's probably one for me personally that I've thought about most in the last 10 or 15 years. Um, and so, I, I mean, I don't think we can fully address it this morning. Um, we actually did a series called, it was several years ago, where it was like, we have so many great questions. Let's do a whole series. And we did an FAQ series. And I spent two Sundays, two whole sermons just talking about why does God seem so angry and violent in the Old Testament and it seems so different in the New Testament? So again, you can go to our website and listen to those and they might be helpful. Um, we're not gonna be able to figure that out or talk about it very comprehensively this morning. But um, I, let me throw out two quick thoughts. Um, one is uh, God is not okay with abuse, with assault, with murder, with rape, with oppression in the Old Testament. It seems like it because there's so many more stories about it, but God condemns it in so many places in the Old Testament. In fact, if you look at when God gets most angry, it's with his own people, Israel, when they are abusing or oppressing or doing violence to others, when they are breaking human relationships with others. So God very strongly condemns this in many places in the Old Testament. Um, another thing that I would say, and I think this can be most helpful, is to back up and, and really understand uh, the purposes for which these books in the Bible are written. So you have to remember, um, the Bible is not one book written by one person about one thing. <laughs> 
Um, it's, 60, it's a collection of books. It's like a library. It's 66 different books written by a whole bunch of different people at different time periods for different reasons. And they were all collected together. And we call it the Bible now, but it's really a collection of books. Now, 39 of them are about, for the most part, the history of ancient Israel and God's relationship with them. And we put all those books together and that became what was called the Hebrew Bible or now we call it the Old Testament. And there are all kinds of stories because it's all about kings and prophets and priests and battles and wars and culture and and the violence of ancient Near East, right? So there's lots of stories that include things about all of that violence and all of those, those tough stories. Well, then you get to these other books that are written hundreds of years later And four of them are just about a guy named Jesus. They're like biographies about this Jewish teacher named Jesus. And then they're about this little movement that he starts. And then there's a book that follows this movement and tells us about sort of how this movement starts and gets going. And then some of the leaders in that movement write a whole bunch of letters to each other. And those are books that are collected. And that's our New Testament. So the purpose of those, there's very few stories in those books about war and battles and rape and oppression and all that. I mean, there's a few tough things, but there are very few stories, nothing compared to the Old Testament. And that's because the purpose of those books is so vastly different. So I was thinking about this uh, a couple days ago. It would be like if you read a book about World War II, a history of World War II, Right? And it just told you a survey of all that happened in World War II. You would read about some very brutal battles, a lot of bloodshed, um, a lot of atrocity, the Holocaust. Right? You would read brutal stories. And then you read another book, and it is a biography of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was the American president during World War II. But you would be reading about his life. You would be reading about things that he was concerned about. You would be reading about decisions he made in the comfort of the Oval Office about this event taking place. But you could read these two books and you would never walk back and and come away and say, wow, these are not talking about the same war at all, right? Because they're just totally different. Well, of course they're totally different. One's a history book about the war that's telling stories of battles, and the other is a biography about this man's life who is making these decisions. And they're actually talking about the very same event. They're just talking about it from very different places, very different contexts, very different purposes. So that doesn't answer all of the questions about some of the tough Old Testament stories, but I think it can go a long ways. When you're wrestling with, is this talking about the same God? Yes, it's not that God has changed. It's just that all of these books have a very different context and purpose. And they're addressing some different things. And then these New Testament books are a different context and a different purpose. And they're addressing things from a very different place. All right? Does that help? Yeah. Okay, awesome. Very good. Um, Anything to add to that? Yeah, I think... Give God the benefit of the doubt when you read the Old Testament. Just assume in your mind, this is the same God as Jesus. Like, read the Old Testament from that perspective. I think if you come to the Old Testament assuming, I'm going to find a God who's angry and violent and okay with all this, you can probably find that. He can seem a little too silent or seem like he's not taking action quick enough, um, not as fast as we would want to see him intervene. 
And yet, if you look at him from the very beginning of the Bible, from the perspective of love and grace and salvation and redeemer and all these things we see in Jesus, you'll find that from, from day one. I mean, from we read about Adam and Eve and and they have to leave the garden because they sin. But also, God like makes clothes for them and says that He's going to send a redeemer. Like you can just look at the same story from different perspectives and and find what you're looking for. There is so much grace and the patience of God and the compassion of God. It's just those words maybe aren't used as explicitly as they're used in the New Testament. And and keep this in mind. The Old Testament was Jesus's Bible. That's all he had. The God that he came to reveal is the God of the Old Testament. That was his God. That was the God he followed and the God he worshiped and the God he was coming to reveal. A God of deep compassion and grace and patience. So um, that can be important to remember as well. And look for angry Jesus, because it's the other side of the same coin. If you read in the New Testament and you look at what Jesus actually does and actually says, like, yes, there's so much love and grace, and there's turning over tables and calling people out and name calling. I mean, he gets really um, intense, too, and in all the best ways, because Old Testament or New, God cares a ton about justice. Yeah. Um, Okay, let's move on. All right. Um, What are your thoughts on prophecy? And what do you look for from a prophet to have a sense if they are a true prophet? Um, yeah, this is a good question because we, um, the Bible uses the word prophecy a lot because there are Old Testament prophets. There's all these books written by Old Testament prophets. And then the New Testament uses the word prophecy slightly differently, but it's easy to kind of see it in the same vein. Um, Prophecy seems to be much more important in biblical times because basically a prophet was just somebody speaking the words of God to people. We tend to think of prophets as predicting the future, but that was actually a fairly small role. Usually it was just a prophet coming and saying, God's given me a message. Uh, He's trying to give you the message, but it's not clear. So he made it clear to me so I can make it clear to you, right? And he's just a spokesperson or she. There's women prophets as well. They're spokespeople for God. They're just speaking the words of God. Um, Well, now that we have scripture, um, we have all of these writings that in many ways are telling us what God's character is like, are telling us what God's relationship with Israel was like, and then what God's relationship with the church is like, and what God's relationship with humanity is like. It's almost as if now those words are the most important uh, pointers or ways for us to understanding what God's message is to us, ways for us to understand what God's character is like. Um, so today you don't see the need for like prophets standing up saying, God has spoken to me and I am now speaking to you the words of God. Um, what you're really seeing is more like people like us <laughs> as pastors saying, uh, God has spoken to me, not with a voice. He spoke to me the same way he's spoken to you through this word, through these stories about who Jesus is and what God is like. And I'll just kind of try to help you understand the stories because I've tried to study them and understand them. But my role is just to point to the words of God that have already been spoken and have already been given to all of us to better understand what God is like. Um, So I'm a little bit, 
Well, not a little bit. I'm very cautious about people who now today stand up and say, I'm a prophet. God's given me a message. He hasn't given to everyone else. He told me that we all need to do this and you need to do this. Um, the New Testament is pretty clear. Like, be very wary of that. Um, we should be pointing to what God has already told us in the Bible um, and be very wary of people who are pointing to things that are sort of outside of the Bible. All right. Yeah, I would add there's a whole lot of crazies out there. Don't <laughs> listen to everything that they say. And, I mean, I was raised in a Pentecostal church where it was very much emphasized that God still speaks to us. And so I think that's true. I think that the Holy Spirit can speak a message directly to your heart. But there's a really great litmus test we have, and that's that God's not going to contradict what he's already said in his word. So if you feel like you're hearing something from God, but you're like, that doesn't sound like the Bible, then that's probably not God speaking to you. Um, and if someone else feels like they have a message from God and it's totally off the rails and not what the Bible would be saying, then God's probably not speaking to them. Um, so it's a little tricky to hold that tension of God's still active in the world. He still speaks to us. But we have a really, really solid base for the kinds of things that God has already revealed. And he's not going to go against that. Yeah, we'll sometimes talk here about listening for God's voice in our lives or God's direction. And usually what we don't mean is God's actual, like a voice, you know, beaming down from, from heaven. It's usually the, there's a story in the Old Testament of Elijah hearing God's still small voice. And usually what it means is uh, words of comfort and affirmation and this peace and this inner sense that you are God's child, you are son or daughter. It's, it's affirming the things that we already read about in scripture. That 99% of the time, that is God's voice. And we do need to look for that. That is God speaking to us today to reaffirm what we've already learned and heard from him uh, from scripture. And, and that's important to seek out. And sometimes the Holy Spirit will convict or challenge and we'll sense that from God as well. It's the types of things where it's like, God just told me Jesus is coming back on Tuesday. Like, no, probably not. Yeah, you're right, right. Okay, um, where did God come from before he created everything? Mm. Uh, yeah, this is, a, um, this is a very deep philosophical question. And uh, I... Uh, let, let me just tee it up a little bit. I want to give you two like philosophical categories that might help think about this and might actually help think about some other things. Um, these are not words that the Bible is going to use, but I think the Bible affirms this and sort of paints this picture. Um, so philosophers like to talk about there are uh, necessary beings and there are contingent beings. Uh, a necessary being is, it, there's only one, it's God. A necessary being is self-existent, meaning he finds his existence within himself, meaning there is nothing outside of his, himself um, that he is dependent upon for his energy or life or being or existence. So he is self-existent. Um, meaning uh, there was never a time that he did not exist. If there was a time that he did not exist and he came into existence, his existence would be dependent upon some source that existed before him. And there will never be a time that he does not exist, right? And so the Bible even uses the language. He is the alpha and omega. He is the beginning and the end. There is no beginning before him or end after him. So he is self-existent, which makes him a necessary being. He has infinitely and always existed, right? 
Um, and then there are contingent beings. That's all of us. That's everything in creation. We find our existence and our life and our breath from him. It's given to us by him, right? And so we are always 100% dependent upon our existence from him. And this is an infinite qualitative distinction between God and everything else in creation. Um, And it can go a long ways towards explaining some things, but I think it helps with this idea because it takes us back to this place that, that there wasn't a before with God. There wasn't a time when he didn't exist. And I mean, this starts to break down all of the way we think. Like we can't even think about, we can't even use language of time without, you know, trapping God within time and thinking of God outside of time. We have to begin to be open to this idea that God can be outside of time and space and matter. And, and this is actually why I think the, the farther you go into studying science, the more it can deepen your faith in God, right? Because scientists will come to this conclusion, astrophysicists, that, that the world uh, all came into being 13.8 billion years ago from this big bang, right? Because um, there was this infinite singularity of energy and space, and there's nothing we can do to understand what existed before that. Like, we, we don't have any laws or understanding to get before that. And I think that actually deepens our sense that there is this necessary and self-existent God who has always existed and for which we're not going to have rational or scientific categories for. And that's okay. Because we are deeply dependent on him and we find our life in him. All right? Okay, I said I wasn't going to get philosophical, so we should stop I there. I learned something new about you today. When you get really excited... <laughs> I stand up. You stand up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, do we have time for one more? Yeah, we can quick. do it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, is the praying to Mary and other attributes of the Catholic Church, um, in terms of its devotion to Mary, a form of idolatry? Um, well, I'm not Catholic, uh, I didn't grow up in the Catholic tradition. I was taught, I actually grew up in a church tradition that kind of say like Catholics are wrong and they're evil and they got everything wrong. And I don't think that's the case, right? I think we're all on the same team and we're all a part of the history of the church and we all are seeking to follow Jesus and live out his desire in our lives. Um, and so I've learned so many amazing things from the Catholic tradition um, and still do today, right? Um, some of the most devoted people I know to Jesus are, are Catholic. Um, I, I, I think this is one place where, um, they've misunderstood something. I don't, I wouldn't go as far as to call it idolatry. I think that's probably too strong of a word. Um, I understand why early in the history of the church, there was this elevation of Mary of, um, because she is this, I mean, you read her story and she is amazing. And if there's anything that us Protestants do, we probably don't elevate her enough as this amazing model of faith, right? That God would come to her in such humility and say, you're going to be the one who is going to uh, be the vehicle by which Jesus comes into this world. And you're going to teach him the faith. Like Jesus learned the faith from Mary and from Joseph. That's amazing. Um, And so I understand how within a few hundred years of church history, uh, Mary was maybe elevated beyond what she should have been. And um, she provided a good model. um, And and then there were questions about uh, was Jesus, if Jesus was sinless, then maybe Mary was sinless. And they started. And I think there were some things that got off track there. And so we don't 
um, venerate or pray to Mary the way some Catholics do, because I think the Bible teaches we should only pray to God. Um, but I understand why they pray to her. And I think there's a genuine desire uh, to ask her to intercede for me if she has this special position uh, with God. Uh, I don't think she's any different than any of us. Um, I think she was just a servant that God used in a powerful way. And so I don't think we should pray to her. Um, but I, I don't know that like being so critical or calling it idolatrous, I, I understand where it could be seen as idolatry, but I probably wouldn't go that far because I think it's just more important to find what are the ways that we're unified and what are the areas of faith that we have in common. And let's circle around those and focus on those than maybe the few places where we have some differences of opinion. Yeah, I think that's good. I think a distinctive of our faith is we get to go to God directly. We don't need any mediator because Jesus has cleared the way for us to talk straight to God, and that's awesome. And I think we have such a short sight in our view of history, and we forget that the Catholic Church was the church, the only I mean, Orthodox, but whatever, the only church for most of church history. And, you know, we split fairly recently. And so we can feel super, super disconnected from the Catholic Church when really we're still a product of that. Right. And it may be a good place to end this time. We're going to sing um, one more song. But what I'd like to actually do now is um, just lead us all into saying the Apostles' Creed together. The Apostles' Creed was beginning to be said in about the hundreds or two hundreds, within about 100 or 200 years after Jesus. And it's the one creed that uh, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical, Pentecostal, every stripe of Christian can affirm. Because it's the one thing that we can say, these articulate the sort of core of our faith of what we believe. And so um, let's just do that now. If you would join me, let's all stand together. We'll put the words of the Apostles' Creed on the screen. And again, this is not to say we believe all of these things all the time because we're super spiritual Christians. It's I believe most of these things. And there are some days I have a hard time believing some of these things. But we come together and we affirm it as a community of faith together. So um, let's say these words together. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.